0: You are listening to the Holy Cannoli Podcast. It's all about making sense of life, who we are, and why we're here. Life is sacred and life is strange. And here's our dad, Tony Gapastone. All right, hey everybody. Tony Gapastone here, and I'm doing a crossover episode with uh, my two podcasts at one time. So this is a Holy Cannoli episode as well (laughs) as a Brave Maker podcast because our guest today has... Such great stories and work to share in both of those worlds. So, welcome Andre Henry.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Who is in the Brave Maker Studios, and he flew up yesterday from LA. So you're actually kind of our first real like w- guest who has come from a distance, even <laughs> though it's only like a couple like 600 an miles, <laughs> yeah, an hour on a plane. But this is a big deal. A big deal when we like, okay, let's book a let's book a flight for our first. Panelists who's oh, going to be? Is a big yeah, deal. so that was a big deal. So thank you for taking time out of all the work that you're doing. Oh, my pleasure. So Andre, for those who don't know you, I mean, I've been following your work for oh, maybe two years now, okay. three, mm-hmm. three. But we met for the first time yesterday. in, yeah, in life, person, in right, life, yeah. right? But we've talked on the phone. We have done, you know, social media interaction, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And uh, so those who don't know you who are you and why are
1: you here on this earth? How would you <laughs> answer that question? Yeah. I mean, the question of who I am is always, I always get stumped on that, on that one because people are usually saying, well, what do you do? Like, the, like, what is this? What is this one thing that I huh so, so I try to make it easy for people by saying like, I'm a writer and a speaker and I'm trying to activate people to do something about racial injustice, mm-hmm. you know? Um, even beyond just educating, but also but trying to give people the the right mental frameworks for the struggle that is necessary to do something about racism. You're would you so would you consider yourself
0: also an artist as well as an activator?
1: Yeah, for sure. Because you do um, music and poetry, and I do. Um, I do music, and I have done music. It's been like a lifelong passion of mine. Um, to write songs and all that kind of thing. So that definitely is a part of it. Um, Yeah, it's definitely a part of it.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate all the work that you have done and are doing. I feel like I've learned a lot and You are coming tonight to our Brave Maker film screening, which is a film called Bias, which Mm -hmm. is on race and gender bias, and I felt like you were the perfect person (laughs) to come and sit on that panel. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so let's kind of back up to how did you figure this calling, this desire to spend your life being the author, educator, writer, Mm -hmm. and
1: activist? Yeah, um, so I have always been aware of racism. I grew up in I grew up in a small town in Georgia called Stone Mountain. Um which is just like seven miles outside of Atlanta. So very close to Atlanta but also very small. And so here's an interesting thing about Stone Mountain is are you familiar with no, Stone Mountain? Okay. Not at all. So Stone Mountain is not a real mountain. That's not how actual <laughs> mountains are made. Actual mountains are made when continental plates hit, strike one another and do the thing. So it's a huge rock, really. It's, it's a rock that's like 1,300 feet high or something like that. And on the side of this mountain is the largest Confederate monument in the country mm. and the largest bas-relief in the world. Bass? Yeah, like the... The, like the fish? The, not, not the fish, but like the type of art that it is, it's a relief. Oh, I see. You know, okay. it's carved into something. Oh, right? wow, wow, wow. Okay. It's so the largest piece of art like that of its kind in the world. Wow. And it's a Confederate monument. And it is in my hometown. Hmm. So, now, is it a small town? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a small town. So, I've always been aware of racism, like living in a town with that kind of history where... Every Fourth of July, people go to this Confederate monument, and there's a laser show, and the laser show traces the Confederate generals that are carved into the side of that rock and makes them move again, wow. right on the Fourth of July. So interesting. So I've always been aware of racism, but when you grow up in the South, um, you learn that it is impolite and inappropriate. To talk about racism. It's something that, you know, it's supposed to be in the past, a lot of denial. So, naming it as a kid was always um, difficult because people wouldn't let you, like, people would silence you. Um, I learned when I moved out of the South, when I moved to New York um, after college, that not only was I right about the things that I would pick up on as a kid, but that it was worse than I thought, right? Like, it wasn't just the next door neighbor who was a member of the Klan and pulled a gun on my older brother for Mm. walking our dog through the neighborhood. Mm. Like that kind of racism is easy to spot. But I realized that all of the little, like the subtle, you know, subtle little slights and things, like Nelson Mandela writes in his autobiography that like he doesn't know how he became political, but it was like just a million little, you know, a million little slights Mm. that happened to him. And eventually he found himself doing the work. Well, I found out that those things were real. Those things that you look in and go, well, why did, why did they say that to me that way? Or why did they watch me so closely? Or was that guy following me in the store? Then no, like, that was really happening. And I found language for that in New York. When people were, started talking to me about systemic racism, um, a quick story like of one of the examples is I, I was uh, applying for this apartment in Harlem, and I spoke to the landlord on the phone. And he was really excited about meeting me he was like oh my gosh like we don't get a lot of decent people what he said we don't get a lot of decent people looking for apartments like you like maybe we could even be friends he said you know on the phone and i saw his face drop when he finally saw me and he didn't Mm. rent me the apartment Mm. And the only thing that changed between the time we talked on the phone and us meeting was him him seeing seeing me right so i started realizing like this is a thing um Around that time, Eric Garner was choked to death by the police, and so, you know, there's this journey of waking up to, not only is it real, mm-hmm. it is prevalent, not only is it prevalent, it's worse than you thought, but around 2016 was a watershed moment for me. Um, When I saw Philando Castile bleed to death on Facebook Live, mm-hmm. he was in front of his girlfriend and their four-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. so... You know, he's pulled over by the police. They suspected him of something. And they said they suspected him of being a robbery suspect or something. He fit the description, they said. Um, And when you're black, you know that fitting the description. The description is black. Black. (laughs) um, I I I laugh at terrible things. So I always like I say things like that, like they're just fact of life. And Mm -hmm. you kind of have to laugh so you don't cry. So, yeah, the description is black. So Philando Castile was... Shot four times in the chest for fitting the description, and that that event just made me make some commitments to myself that week that he was that he was killed, and I made three. One was that I would no longer let the news cycle determine when we talked about racism. I spent my whole life experiencing racism, learning more about it, seeing that it's worse than I thought, and I and. I just couldn't say now. Now when now when people are outraged about one news story, is not enough. We have to keep talking about this consistently on a regular basis. And so I decided to do that. Um, the other thing is that I would actually study racism. Like I knew it personally, but I couldn't have told you. I couldn't have told you that week that black men have a one in three chance of. Serving time in prison, you know i couldn't have told you that a black man has is seven times more likely to go to jail on any given day than a white than their white counterparts i couldn't i couldn't have told you that i couldn't have told you that you know we are the most incarcerated mm. nation on the planet, having five percent of the world's population but twenty five percent of the world's prisoners, mm. and forty percent of those prisoners are black
0: mm.
1: right I, so so I made the decision to learn. Um and I, I made I, I made a commitment to invest my body somehow my my actual body somehow in pursuing racial justice. and everything changed after that. so before that change, what was the trajectory of your life? What did you think you were going to be doing? Well. I mean, I thought I was going to do a lot of things, but I'm, <laughs> I was in Pasadena at the time at Fuller Seminary because I thought that I would become an Old Testament professor Because what I was. Yeah. I, w- I went through a whole thing of feeling like, no, this is, this is what I want to do. I'm interested in the Old Testament. And that was the path that I was on. Now I had already, I had already given up on becoming an Old Testament professor once I had to take like. Ugaritic, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which most people won't even yeah. know what that is. But it's, a, it's an ancient Western yeah. Semitic language that no one speaks anymore. So, and, so one of the connections that Andre and I have is the, the seminary background. Mm-hmm.
0: We both went to the same school in different parts of California, but I too gave up some things in seminary because oh, yeah? I could not do the languages. I, yeah, I, I thought I was going to have my masters of divinity, which mm-hmm. uh, people call the MDiv for short. And if you're in the church world, that's sort of like the the end all be all like degree to have on your wall. Mm-hmm. And I felt. I, I fell short. I failed yeah. in that in that area. So when you when you talk about recognizing that, like, oh, this isn't worth my time, or yeah. uh, that's an interesting part of the story for you. Well, yeah,
1: I mean, sometimes you start you start on the on the path and you realize, eh, not so much. And that's the only way to discover that. And so I'd already I'd already said, okay, I don't want to become an Old Testament professor, but I was going to finish the degree. And um, around then is when Phila- Philando Castile was was killed, and so I, I don't feel like it was I don't feel like it was like a change of direction for me as much as everything that I thought that I would do and all of my gifts and talents and interests all converged on one point, right? Because like it became more clear clearer than ever in some way. Yeah, like it like being in like being an artist, you know, never like. That didn't change. I started basically doing performance art without without intending to, but that was the way that I responded to that particular story was with art. Like I lugged a stone around Los Angeles for months to illustrate, like this is what it feels like to be black and to have this mental load on your mind, you know, of what black people are going through and the pervasiveness of racism and the continuance of racism, you know, and, that is the kind of art that Old Testament prophets did. That's prophetic, right? very prophetic, yeah. Where, you know, you have Isaiah bursting into, like, this meeting of all these kings with an oxyoke o- over his, you know, attached to his shoulders, right? Like, that is performance art.
0: Or Jeremiah rolling in feces, right? I mean, Yeah, Ezekiel cooking Ezekiel, his bread, uh, you know, over yeah. his
1: own poop or something yeah. like that. Or as Isaiah walking around naked. Yeah. Like, these are all instances you know of a type of performance art you know if you want to look at it That's that cool. way and then also those themes of justice of the world being sacred of the murder of people defiling god's sacred creation are all old testament themes that converge there you know so you know for me it didn't it didn't put me on another path as much as clarified some things mm-hmm. you know and brought all those things together in a way that didn't feel cohesive before mm-hmm. Right. So it was 2016 when you started carrying
0: the rock around? I think that is when I was introduced to you.
1: Yeah. Through summer 2016. Okay. Yeah.
0: So shout out to our mutual friend, Jonathan Dustin Stoner. Stoner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I met Jonathan at Sundance and I think I was, that was when I just started to scratch the surface of sort of my figuring out my journey. Who am I? Why am I here? And, yeah. And um, obviously, you know, being uh, in the church world, you know, doing the seminary thing, Uh, My church was predominantly white. I was recognizing my own biases through the small conversations I was having with my friends of color who would Mm. often, I want to credit Lily Jackson, who is in Southern California. I don't know if you know her work. I think you two should definitely connect. I don't think so. Oh, man. She's got a a short uh, one-act play called Comb Your Hair or You'll Mm -hmm. Look Like a Slave. (laughs) And she does a lot of performances, performance art in L- LA yeah. about the black experience. And so she was an intern with me for one year and then came back a second and a third year. And I just loved her and a uh, great artist. And so I would often talk with her cause we get in conversations about what it was like to be one of the only black women in our church. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think the thing I took away from her as well as when I sit in your work is how oppressive I am and was mm. in just my Questions and my ongoing need to understand yeah, and tell wow. me and help me mm-hmm. and what would you say to a white person and right, hey right, come right. up here let me parade you in front of this group <laughs> to talk about what it's like to be black
1: yeah so
0: what do you think I mean I, as I do it to you right now I mean like what do you think that is what do you think that is with the white with the white culture that we have this need to do that it's almost you know. Um, colonizing even
1: more in some way and we yeah I mean somehow white people don't realize that white supremacy is a white person's problem it's white people's problem mm-hmm. you know Stokely Carmichael or also known as Kwame Ture you know he he has this quote that I think the principle applies in many different ways and he says if if a man wants to lynch me that's his problem if a man has the power to lynch me that's my problem it's deep yeah. And so when we talk about racism even though like we're not necessarily talking about people that want to lynch others like we don't understand that like so we think that oh yeah like black people are harmed and so like that's that's black people's problem, right? But what what Kwame Ture is saying in this in this thing is that no it's actually not it's actually not my problem. I am affected by it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the problem is not within my community, right? Like we're not the ones perpetuating this. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that a wa- I think that a lot of white people don't understand racism as a problem in white America. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to make it we want to make it that everyone is racist. Right? And everyone has to everyone has to deal with this problem. Everyone has this problem within their communities and needs to fix it. But there are a lot of of scholars you know who deal with these topics all the time who would say no not really <laughs> you know the the situation is more so that is about the use of power right and i think that a lot of peop- a lot of white people also don't don't understand that either mm-hmm. right when we talk about how people are situated in our social structure mm-hmm. You know, people use that term white privilege Mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. And a lot of white people don't feel privileged personally on an individual level. They don't, especially considering the fact that you have like billionaires and, you know, who seem to be doing much better than others. And some of those really rich people are black. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. So all of these things, I think white people look around at the social structure and they don't see it individually. Like They don't feel personally like they are more privileged than others. Or they may not feel on an individual level that they participate or perpetuate, you know, a system that harms non-white people, you know. And so the, the challenge is for white people to be able to see that, you know. And then the question is, who is responsible to help white people see that, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's what you're getting at with asking, you know, black people to do that. Like, we see it clearly because we are harmed by it, you know, we're frustrated by it, it exhausts us. But also, trying to get white people to see that is also exhausting, yeah, and um, let me what do you think about this?
0: Uh, I think part of the white the problem i I have as a white person and just to represent you know the white community, we take on this intimidation, we feel like. We're going to say something wrong, and then we right. blame you in a way. We blame right. the black community for our insecurity. So, in the same way, like you, what we're talking about earlier, is racism isn't the black person's problem; it's the white person's problem. In the same way, we kind of put this uh, we this this tension, and we say like, "Well, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to ask the wrong question. Yeah. I don't want to," and and then we create more of a chasm. And what I'm taking away from. Uh, this journey that i've been on like the past year i think specifically in general whether it's about racial injustice or as we've been talking about on our podcast and in our brave maker community lgbtq inclusion uh, or gender equality i'm just trying to sit back and go like how i need to listen shut up i just need to listen yeah i just need to learn and i need to figure out like what do i need to own um, I don't think shame or guilt is a good motivator. Yeah. I don't think it motivates people, but I think we feel a lot of guilt and shame because we know we've contributed. Uh, yeah. And so, I think some people know they've contributed. Not everybody,
1: you know? And some people are trying not to feel that, right? So yeah. that is like the the aggressive kind of true. reaction, right? True, true. The defensiveness is like yep. to shield shield themselves from good feeling point. guilty or shame. Good point. Yeah.
0: I think someone, I forget who said it, but someone told me, like, Tony, you don't have to feel sorry for being white. Mm -hmm. That's not what this conversation is about. I was like, oh, that actually did something to me. Like, I don't have to feel sorry for being, but I do feel sorry for the way that my whiteness Mm. has contributed to a system, to an unjust system, and I really felt that in when I was in the church culture, I'm still in the church culture. I'm a part of a church. I love the church. I always love the church. Um, but I know it's broken just like any system mm-hmm. is in, in any yeah. family. There's dysfunction. Mm-hmm. But when I was on the inside on an official role, I felt like I was responsible to do, to make some change as the white person mm-hmm. in the community. Yeah. Like in all these conversations, like starting a, r- a racial justice group,
1: Yeah,
0: I was going after people of color. Like, come, come hang because I and, right. and it was great. it was great, yeah. but what it did for them it seemed like was give them a place to vent mm-hmm. and we listened. Mm-hmm. but we needed more white people in that group. exactly. the church wasn't going to change yeah. unless the people who were the majority were willing to come to that group and say, oh, things got to change. So you and the people of color here, we want to hear you. Yes, we want to listen. We want to let you vent and make it safe. But I also want to invite you to the table. I want to give you roles. I want to find a way to
1: change it. But it it was so hard. It was so hard to push that forward. Yeah, like white people treat racism like a special interest of people of color, Mm -hmm. right? So people send me like articles like about, you know, like racism and, you know, people being, you know, racially profiled and dying in police encounters and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, why are you sending me this? <laughs> yeah. Like but they're like, oh Andre talks about this all the time. He's interested in this. Uh-huh. Like he'll he'll appreciate this. I'm like, but you don't need to send that to me. Yeah. You need to send that to the white people and some and some people of color in your life mm-hmm. who don't understand this and don't believe and don't get it. Like mm-hmm. that's who you should be focusing mm-hmm. on and a lot of white people don't do that and that's why you have like white people don't take african american studies courses and mm-hmm. they don't you know they don't they don't go and buy these books and read these books generally because they don't see it as something that really applies to them mm-hmm. um and that is that is the that is a part of the switch that needs to happen if there's going to be racial progress mm-hmm. at least on part of white people and i think about this a lot when we talk about white guilt and shame and all this kind of stuff is that white people need to do this work, not so that they can help people of color. <laughs> like we don't, <laughs> we don't need white people to save us mm-hmm. from racism. Right. And we don't need white people to, you know, um, we don't need, we also don't need white people to just go around feeling bad about themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. We, that's also not what this is about. Like you said, mm-hmm. you know, but this is about what kind of society do you want to live in? Mm-hmm. Right. What, what side of history do you want to be on? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the kinds of questions, right. It's, it's it's about on many levels you know white people being free from the very same system right mm-hmm. and being locked into the position of of being uh being in the tradition of their ancestors mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and a lot i know that a lot of white people okay so since since i know that this is going to be in both channels right and, mm-hmm. and faith is a part of this i remember this guy on twitter um post this passage from Ezekiel that says you know that everyone is responsible for their own sins you know the children won't be won't be punished for the sins of their ancestors right which which it does in Ezekiel 18 there's a passage that talks about that right and so my response to him was you don't get to say that that was your parents or your ancestors that did that, if you are continuing to maintain and defend and benefit from the sins of your ancestors. You don't get to have it both ways. You only get to say, well, that was them if you break with, their tra- with that tradition, mm. right? But if you keep in that tradition, then you, you share their guilt, mm-hmm. you know? And that is the thing that white people should want to be free from, mm. you know? And that should be a part of the motivation that gets white people to do it, other than the fact that um, that system of, of, of white supremacy also does hurt some white people too. You know White people will vote against their best their own interests if they think that those same policies will hurt black people or, or will benefit black people, right? So without racism, we might have universal health care. Mm. But you know why some white people vote against universal health care is because they think black people might get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and This is <laughs> there's studies that show this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And so these are reasons why white people should be looking at this system and saying, "Wow, like this this is harmful to everyone," mm-hmm. you know.
0: Mm-hmm. I'll interject and say. If you're listening right now as a white person and you're feeling like, well, not me, (laughs) I would love to encourage you to take the Harvard Bias Assessment Test. Mm. It's a free online tool. If you just Google that, you'll find it. It's actually what is the basis of the documentary that we're screening tonight with Brave Maker. And I took it feeling totally cocky that I was going to take it and, you know, pass, quote unquote, with flying colors. But both in the gender and in the race assessment, I both both showed results that I equate women with um, family and not career Mm -hmm. and black people with guns and violence. Yeah, Like that was so alarming
1: to me. This is something that Dr. King talks about, and he laments actually later in his life, is that he laments that white America doesn't have a curiosity about the things that black people are protesting, Mm -hmm. right? And so the very thing that, that you would say is like, Okay, well, well, yeah, not me. You know, I've never done that before, right? I don't, I don't have any bias. And the question is, well, how do you know? Yeah, how how do you know? Did you did you even ask yourself that question before this moment right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. have you reflected on it? Mm-hmm. Like you just you're just taking it as a mm-hmm. given. You know, like, but it's it's not really necessarily mm-hmm. it's not really necessarily a given, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about about racism, about bias, all these kinds of things. Like mm-hmm. it's not always obvious. Like I said, like even myself. And this is something that I bring up a lot. Like if I grew up in the shadow of Confederate Mount Rushmore and I still got to New York and realized that the problem was deeper and more prevalent and worse than I thought and I'm black and I've experienced these things my whole life. How much more How much more then should a white person say, oh, well, then if he can sneak up on somebody who grew up in that context and experienced it that often, how much more could I not be noticing it? Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about justice
0: on Facebook. You talk a Mm -hmm. lot about for the church too. calling every almost every Monday. Is it every Monday? Sunday or Monday. Uh Mm -hmm. Andre will post this question. What was said about justice with your church? Mm -hmm. Why is that important for you?
1: Uh, Because I knew that I knew that most people would say nothing. (laughs) Honestly, um, I knew that most people would say nothing. And I wanted to expose that. Um, But people surprised me, though, because some people actually were going some people started actually looking for it. Right, looking for what their churches were saying, and they started posting, and it became a source of encouragement to other people That's who great. were going to churches yeah. that were not talking about justice. Yeah. So they saw that people were, and they'd be like, "Oh, well, maybe I should go check out this other church," mm-hmm. or they were at least encouraged to see some kind of message that had to do with justice, yeah. um, in that in that feed. But I want I started asking that question, like I said, to to expose the fact that many churches. At least in the evangelical circles that I've been in, we're not talking about justice. Mm-hmm. And now, years later, because I started asking that question in 2016, so it's been a few years. Um, I've come to realize that a lot of evangelical churches don't even have the frameworks to talk about justice well. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of a lot of white Christians, when they start trying to theologize around justice, it ends up being pretty weak. You know. Today, someone said to me, the best the best weapon that we have against racism is true Christianity. Now you would think that that's right, right? Because most people would think, well, true Christianity means that you love your neighbor as yourself and you can't love your neighbor and oppress your neighbor at the same time. But here's the problem with this argument of true Christianity. White Christians have been killing other white Christians in the name of true Christianity for centuries. You know, when you talk about like Anabaptists were literally being drowned by Calvinists because they believed in full immersion, right? And for those who don't know what that, that is, that's all about baptism. Like people were yeah. killing each
0: other over baptism.
1: One group of Christians thought you're supposed yeah. to sprinkle water on a it's baby. That's crazy, yeah. And other Christians thought you're supposed to dunk yeah. the whole adult. Mm-hmm. And they literally killed each other over this. So myself as a black person, I'm not interested in that. That is an abstract idea. It's a mm-hmm. It's a philosophical argument. That true Christianity will solve racism. I don't. But the reality, the lived reality, the material reality of that is that there are forty-seven thousand denominations of Christianity in the world, Mm -hmm. and most of them think that they are the right one. Mm -hmm. I don't have time for them to figure that out. Yeah. If if that is the prerequisite for saving black lives. Yeah. Right. We don't have time for that.
0: Yeah.
1: Other thing we can't we can't talk about you know true Christianity saving black lives when the Christian church has been so complicit in racism, Mm -hmm. right? From, from the beginning, the Pope, uh, the Pope wrote these papal bulls that sanctioned the conquest of North America that sanctioned the, the slave trade where millions and millions of native people and African people died. Right. And so, for someone to say the, the, best, the best solution that we have is true Christianity is like, wait, you haven't even done the work mm-hmm. on yourself to understand that what you've said comes from your own social location. It comes from your ignorance of how that feels to a black person, right? And so I'm realizing even in asking that question, what was said at your church on Sunday, that some of these pastors, even if they did try to talk about justice, would not do it well. Mm-hmm because the very assumptions that they have and the frameworks that they have are inadequate. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Man, Those who listen to my Holy cannoli podcast know, you know, after spending 20 years with the church and 27 years in the church community as a person of faith, know that I love the church, but at the same time, I just, I feel so stuck because the church in so many ways is so limited to just what we do on Sunday. Yeah. And what we do on Sunday is so limited to what happens on Sunday mm-hmm. that it just feels like we can never get any work done. I just had a pastor lunch a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we were talking about, we had this big LGBTQ conference between seven different churches. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the pastors said like, this is so great, you know. I'm glad we're having this conversation. We're taking it back to our elders, but we're gonna have to do a lot of talking. You know, it took us uh, two years to figure out if we were gonna let women preach or not. And I just sat there going, "It took two years of you guys meeting before you had to figure out if you're gonna let women right. preach or not." Like that is crazy yeah. to me. Like it. That's why. Like sometimes I just battle like. I want to be so a part of the church and so a part of leadership and changing the church, but at the same time, it's this slow-moving organization. So what I see you're doing, this work that's not—it's—it's it's a lot for the church. A lot of the work mm-hmm. you're doing is for the church, but you're not doing it from within inside a church context.
1: No, and I—I I honestly don't feel like we can. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I just—I totally. just don't feel like we can. I don't feel like yeah. we can afford to do that. It's yeah, like yeah. because. <laughs> Okay, I I laugh, but it's like, it's not like it's anti-church, right? Like what I'm doing comes from my faith, right? There are theological convictions underneath what I'm saying,
0: right? Obviously a ton. You're quoting scripture. You're talking about these theologians all the time.
1: But I can't, I cannot waste time arguing theology with people (laughs) Mm -hmm. about this, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, listen, y'all, we got to save black lives. And someone's like, but we got to check our doctrines and yeah, creeds, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm like, I, I don't have time for that. Yeah. You know, I hear you. And, um, and this has a part and this has a part to do with, you know, the way that white power and white dominance has operated in these spaces, right. Where even the questions that white people are asking about faith, about mm-hmm. Jesus, Mm-hmm. are oftentimes not the same questions that black people are asking about faith and about mm-hmm. Jesus. So, you know, for someone to to want to like argue about I don't know. Okay, so example, most of the people that hated the fact that I was lugging this stone around Los Angeles were white pastors. Mm-hmm. I was arguing with white pastors very often in 2016. And one of them was like, "Well, this is how we we got on the we got on the phone, and he was like, "Well, I think that liberation theology has nothing to offer the church." Now, if you're listening, you never heard of liberation theology. I mean, a very simple definition is that liberation theology says that theology is about liberating people. That's, that's good news. Should be yeah. right. my has, chains fall off? Yeah. Not. Yeah. yeah. Like that's that's what like James Cone wrote in God of the Oppressed, the task of theology is liberation. That's what he wrote. Now at the time I hadn't even I read I skimmed James Cone God of the Oppressed. I wasn't out here like trying to pedal liberation theology. I was talking about my own life and the lives of people like myself and others being saved and thinking that as a Christian you should care that your neighbor is hurt and you should do something that your neighbor is hurt. I think that's the message of the good Samaritan, right? But this man is sitting down, and he wants to debate theology. He wants to debate whether liberation theology, an abstract term, a philosophical construct, a theological framework, is legitimate or not. I don't have time for that. (laughs) Yeah, right. I don't have time for that. Yeah. I don't. I don't care what you read in Calvin or Luther or any other theologian. Would you know Tim Keller? Who I don't care what they wrote in their books. Yeah. You know what does that have to do? with stopping the bullets that went into Philando Castile's chest, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean by some of the fundamental questions, the things that are important. You know, I found in these conversations that all kinds of abstract, inanimate things that don't feel, that don't have bodies, that don't experience pain are way more important to white people in these in these conversations than are the black people who are losing their loved ones and, and being traumatized by seeing black people being abused in these Facebook videos and these mm. news stories, you know, so people are, people are way more protective over what they think the Bible says, right? Or some theological framework or some piece of doctrine. Again, all of these things, immaterial, inanimate, mm-hmm. non-feeling, they don't experience pain. And that's partly why we're, that's partly why we're missing each other mm. is that, Why don't, for one moment, some of these people step back and try to just think on a human level? Mm -hmm. How would I feel if what they were telling me about their lives was true about my life? Yeah. There's uh,
0: Jada Pinkett's Red Table Red Table Talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's on Facebook Watch. If you aren't watching it, listeners, uh, she had a what's her name? I don't know this woman, a white activist older woman. Jane Elliott. Jane Elliott. Mm-hmm. She had Jane Elliott on and Jane Elliott's been doing this work with white people for a couple of decades. But one of the questions she asked a group of white people was, it, would you, I am going want to mess it up, but something about if you could, um, if you don't think the way black people are treated is bad, how about you being treated like black people are? How she many asked, of you would take that, right? She
1: asked the audience, do they believe that racism is real? Uh-huh. And a lot of people didn't raise their hands. Okay. And then she And asked, then she asked, Well, how many of you would want to be treated like black people? Right, that was it. Yeah. And nobody raised their hand. Nobody raised their hand. Yeah. She's, Chilling. Yeah. Which
0: is obviously confirming that they know there's racism and there's unjust treatment. And so I just, man, I, I listen to that and I go, I know I have so much more work to do and and the more things to learn. And I think if you're listening to this podcast as a white person today, uh, There's so many resources out there. There's so many yeah, things you should sure. be watching and learning and listening. Uh, could you name a few of your top books or people besides, yeah, well, we're, gonna mean, get, we're gonna get into your stuff in a second besides yeah. the stuff that you're doing. I mean,
1: I tell people all the time that if they haven't watched 13th on Netflix, uh-huh. they should. It, it will explain the history of racism yep. and mass incarceration. And a lot of the a lot of the talking points that why people that want to oppose this kind of work, Like it it speaks to a lot of those issues. I also tell people Just Mercy by Bryan Stevenson is a great place to start because he he uses a lot of stories to illustrate how racism and racial injustice operates in our current uh, political and criminal justice systems and things like that. And those are those are two that I always tell people start start there because those those will give a good overview, a good framework for people to go deeper.
0: Cool. Now, you've got some stuff I want to talk about. You've got some podcast stuff, an email newsletter, and a whole empire you're building. So let's let's, let's chat about that. Well, first of all, by the way, you were in Florida when you had a real experience Mm -hmm. before we get to that. Because I think, I can't remember if I watched it live or I watched it
1: afterwards and it felt like it was live. Yeah. But do you want to bring people into that? I mean, yeah. If I could briefly, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to keep Corey waiting too long for us to go to lunch either. Um, but um, so yeah, the um, I think that was last year. That was last year, right? When I was pulled over in Florida. You yeah, were man. working
0: for a magazine in Florida. I was
1: working for a Relevant Media Group. It's mm-hmm. a Christian media company in mm-hmm. in Orlando, and I had a friend. My friend Sam was preaching at a church about an hour from Orlando. And I have a rule. Like, if you're my friend <laughs> and I'm at least within an hour of you, <laughs> I at least have to check in and see if I can see you, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so Sam was going to be preaching an hour away. So I'm like, all right, well, I got to go. I got to go check check my boy Sam. So where we went out to eat. I tried Gator for the first time. We're laughing. We're having a good time. And I'm on my way back to Orlando. And all of a sudden, I look in my rearview, window, window, not rearview mirror, sorry, And there's a car like kind of tailgating me like they're very close. And I realize, man, I don't even really know what the speed limit is here. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm going too slow because Uh this this car is very close to me and I'm kind of in the fast lane. So I get over into the slow lane and then they get over and I realize it's the police. The lights come on. They pull me over. And so immediately I go live on Facebook because, you know, I'm just thinking if something happens and, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't live through this encounter, I want for there to be a record of what happened. I want people to be able to see it. I think the fact that you had that instinct
0: is really crazy that you have to think in a world like that as a black man, like that's what you have to do. Like that just sucks to me.
1: I mean, you know, I don't, I want for people to, I want for yeah. people, I want for people to know, Yep. yep. you know, like, cause they're going to make up a story. They're going to make yep. up a story if, if I don't, right? Yeah. Like, uh, or they probably will. So, so you press live, you put I it I in here, I put in my, my little holder so that people uh-huh. can see and, and the, and before they, before I went live, though, they asked me if they could search the car, and I said yes. And the reason, and this is this is something this is something that trips people up. First off, I went live so that people, so that there would be a record, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's all I said. Like I didn't even say I'm trying to expose police corruption, mm-hmm. um, because I didn't know it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I told them that they could search the car makes some people go, "Well, it was a legal search. So what, what's the problem, right?" So before I even get into what happened, the reason why I said yes is because I knew that if I said no, they would search the car anyway. Mm-hmm. If I said no, then they would just say, okay, well, we're going to get the drug dogs and you know, we'll get a warrant and we'll keep you here all night. Right? So something that you have to know as a civilian, as a black civilian, that you have to manage these encounters with the police. There is no expectation that the police are going to de-escalate the situation with you as a black person. You as a black person have to you have to take the leadership of that encounter. So that's me taking leadership of this encounter. I know what's gonna happen if I say no. Fine, search the car. So they do. They're looking for drugs and weapons. And they ask me if I have drugs and weapons. No, I don't have any drugs and weapons. Well, we're gonna search the car for drugs and weapons. So while I'm standing out there, outside of the car, one of the officers asked me, well, you look nervous. Why do you seem so nervous? Mm-hmm. And I told him, because you have a gun on you, sir. He said, well, all, all police officers have guns on them. I'm like, well, this is a this is a weak argument, right? All sharks have teeth. That doesn't make them any less scary, right? Mm-hmm. All lions have claws. That doesn't make them any less scary, you know? Um, so he's like, yeah, he's like, well, we all have guns on we all have guns on us. I'm like, I don't remember what I said after that, but he he asked me, well, have you ever seen anyone get shot when their hands are at ten and two, right? like he wants to start a debate with me that it's it's black people's fault that black people are so often killed in mm-hmm. police encounters. And so I just said to him, we're not going to have that argument right now. That's pretty bold of you to say that too, by the way. <laughs> we're not, <laughs> we're not, we're not, we're not going to have a debate right now. <laughs> like, um, I wasn't nervous. I was frustrated. Mm-hmm. It's after midnight. I'm an hour away from home. I got to be at work at nine in the morning. Mm-hmm. And you're holding me up for drugs and weapons when I've never smoked anything in my life, I've never sold anything in my life, and I've only shot a gun one time at my friend's bachelor party. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm not a criminal, mm-hmm. but you are convinced that I am, mm-hmm. and you are just going to try to prove it right now. I'm not, I'm not scared. I'm not nervous. You weren't scared at all in that moment. I wasn't scared. I was frustrated. Oh, wow. Okay. You know? So... All right, they find that there's no drugs and weapons, and they I think they said something to me about like you know this is a thing people don't understand police work and da 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 da, and then they let me go. Didn't you have like a taillight or something that they kind of talked talk oh, about? Oh, they or said something? they said that the light the t- the light over my license plate was out. Oh, okay. Which this is kind of this is a part of the system thing, right? Like there's when I say system, I mean how things are connected, right? How are you ever supposed to know that the light over your license plate is out? You'll never know that. Yeah. When you get in the car, do you start your car and then get out and then go walk behind your car and see right. if the 12, license plate... 12-point <laughs> inspection. Right. <laughs> you know? the, only yeah. way that you, the only way that you can tell if the light is on over your license plate is if you're behind the car when the car is on. So obviously, this law exists so that a police officer can pull you over on a pretext, right? And say, okay, well, your light was off over, over your car. Because you know what should happen when that happens is... the it should be an automatic warning, right? Police officer pulls you over, gives you a ticket that warns you yeah. that you have this, you have this. Yeah, get it fixed or whatever. Get it fixed, uh-huh. right? So the next time you get pulled over, they can say, well, we know that we we gave you a fixed ticket. Yeah. Right? So anyway, that's why that exists, is so that the police can pull you over and search you for drugs and weapons. OK, so I said I wasn't scared. I, that's not entirely true. <laughs> these are highly armed individuals. Yeah. So there's a part of me that knows I have to manage the situation. So I am a little bit nervous. I was scared and, when I watched you know, the video. Yeah. I was like, this, this yeah, it is It was crazy. tense. It yeah. was tense. I was more frustrated, but there's, I was more frustrated than anything, but there's also a a thing of management there too, knowing sure. that like, well, I cannot really show what I feel. Sure. I can't really say what I'm thinking, all that kind of thing, because I know that, you know, with San, people, things like Sandra Bland, you know what I mean? Like she, Sandra Bland, who was killed in police custody, mm. You know, she knew a lot about racial justice. She knew a lot about the police, and she was very outspoken. And basically, that police officer abused her for 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 speaking. You know, for 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 trying to assert that she was a human being and worthy of dignity, that she hadn't done anything wrong. And so, we know in these encounters, I know white people who mouth off at the police. Yeah, we've seen it all on video, and nothing right? happens. Yeah, right, and they're fine, but you you just can't take that it's just too risky to do as a black person yeah. so so yeah man it, it, it i was shaken up mm-hmm. i was shaking up you know afterward it seemed like
0: that also again i mean gosh dude like all these little things in your life big things as well have shaped this work even more passionately cuz i think i remember might have been the next day you did a recap video. Yeah. And you shared and you were in a different state because like all of the intensity yeah, had like right. settled in your body right. and your mind and your sharing. The adrenaline and
1: was definitely not there in that way. Yeah. I was able to walk people through it more clearly yep. and say, because you did I had people I had people I didn't even know. That that video got twenty thousand views. Yeah. So it was it was shared all over Facebook. Yep. And so what people don't know is that this police officer shared it on his wall. And he he left this whole like status about like how people don't understand police work, and then no, no racism was involved here. And so wow. I popped in there. Wow! I said, "No, you're not about to share my story, and then not hear from me. This is wow. why you don't do this." So I, I popped him in his in his in his comment section. I was like, "Actually, I understand a great deal about police work. I understand that most police departments in America began as slave patrols, and that that owned, and so they were established to control." The movements and behaviors of non-white people. Mm. I understand that very clearly, you know. And so we went back and forth for a bit, and then he took the thing down because I think he realized, you know, people like to mouth off, and so you know, and they like <laughs> He's to dig in a hole. Yeah, they they like to mouth off and they like to be condescending. Mm. And so he was like, "Well, you can copy and paste a bunch of stuff from the internet if you want to." I'm like, "Yeah, that's actually from an article that I wrote on police history." Wow. <laughs> Dang, man. So, but yeah, I did get I did get to walk some people through it. A little bit more calmly, but you know what's also frustrating—not frustrating, but is disheartening about that kind of stuff—is that I saw a lot of conversations happening around that event on in different parts of Facebook and different parts of the internet that I that I've never wandered into because I didn't know these people, mm. and you still have people who are saying things like, "Well, he got smart with the officer, and he had an attitude," and da- finding some way to blame me. Sure, you know, I think I saw that. Yeah, yeah, because I said to the officer, well, "You and I are not going to have that conversation." Yeah, but how is it not a threat? For a police officer to say something to me yeah. like that, have you ever seen someone get shot while they're sure. attending to? And nobody mentions that. You yeah. know, nobody yeah. mentioned. Well, I shouldn't say nobody mentioned that, but in a lot of those conversations, you know, people did not recognize. You know what it feels like to be a civilian and someone who has you know a multi, you know, several types of weapons mm-hmm. on them to say something to you like that. Well, man, I'm sorry that that has been
0: a part of your story and the black story in like it, at large, it just makes me frustrated and sad. And I hope I, in some way can keep telling stories to help bringing this to our, Damn. our consciousness, which is why we are trying to partner in some way. So I'm grateful yeah. that you're here to tell your that. story, be on the podcast, be a part of our thing. And so as a wrap up, how can people find you and tell them about your hope and hard pills, which I yeah. think is one of bit the coolest thing is going on right now with you.
1: Yeah, for sure. I I think Hope and Hard Pills is like the best project I've ever launched ever. Mm. <laughs> um, and basically it it is basically it's my email list. Uh-huh. Uh, you can sign up at my website AndreRHenry.com. We'll have that link in the show notes. And every time I s- And so basically what it is is every week I send out an email with just like a micro blog about anti-racism and social change, my latest blog article, and some links, Mm -hmm. you know, to videos, articles, whatever, around that same subject, anti-racism and Mm -hmm. social change. Mm -hmm. And like I said, when Filano Castillo died, I made some commitments to myself, and one of those things was to learn everything that I can. And So one of the things I've been really studying since then is how does society change? How do ordinary people work together to bring it about? And what I have found is a bunch of information, a bunch of stories, a bunch of studies about how ordinary people have done it in the past and how it tends to work that a lot of people just don't know about. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you knew... Every time I tell this story, people say they never heard this story. Did you know in 1945, uh, in Nazi Germany, the Nazis went and collected, abducted, all of these Jewish men and their wives, who were not Jewish, so they were not taken, um, followed them. Now, they were put in a holding place. They weren't in a concentration camp yet. They were at a holding place in Berlin. And these wives went and stood outside of this holding place and just crying out for their husbands. And their husbands were forbidden by the soldiers inside to go to the windows and answer them. But they didn't listen. They went to the windows anyway. And so you have this communication between the wives on the ground and the husbands in the windows and these women would leave and they go to work and they come back and you know they come back on their lunch break and they come back after work and they did that and eventually those Nazi soldiers let those men go. Hmm. Now this is like the basis of people power hmm. is that things are the way they are because we consent to them being that way. Things are the way they are because we go along with them. But if we were to resist, if we were to remove our consent from the way that things are, then things could change. Stories like that—did have you ever heard that story before? Did you post that on
0: your latest thing? I didn't. Okay, no, I had no. not. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah.
1: People don't. People yeah. don't. And there's yeah. so many stories yeah. like
0: that by ordinary people, like what you said. Too. Yes, it's not the superpowers that oh, need yeah. to change. Okay, so that right.
1: is that is what I po- That is what I sent last yeah. yesterday uh-huh. uh, in last week's email was that there are millions of name of people who mm-hmm. will, we, names will never know mm-hmm. right that that are a part of the very changes that we talk about in the world now people don't know these stories they don't know this history and when i started when i started studying this stuff i just realized that people need to know this yeah. people need if we're going to do something meaningful about racism then people have to know that they can't wait for like another Messiah. Mm-hmm. They can't wait for the next president to do it. They, that it, it has to be us. Mm-hmm. It has to be all of us working together for the kind of society that we want. And so that's what Hope and Heart Pills is about. It's about in, you know, a hundred words or so every week, giving people just a bit of that information that you can be a part of it. You can't do it by yourself. You mm-hmm. cannot save the world. But we can do something different, and that's why I always tell people, you know, like, it doesn't have to be this way, the way yeah. that things are. It doesn't have to be this way because we can do something about it. And so people can sign up for that at my at at my website, and I'll send that out. And from there, there are deeper levels, you know, where we're doing a podcast, and we're going to be putting out some courses in our secret Facebook group for people who are paying subscribers.
0: Yeah, so, so we'll people, have that link, too, because you have a Patreon. Exactly. You're, I was exactly. just thinking to myself, Andre Henry, two names but one empire. <laughs> <laughs> like, like launching this one space of life-changing activation. So. Yeah,
1: and we've got more people, you know, like that we that are also working with us, yep. you know, and so I want for Hope and Hard Pills to be more than just like Andre Henry's, you know, blog, mm-hmm. you know, but where, I mean, I have friends that are doing this work too, you know, and they all have valuable things to share. They have meaningful things to share. And so, not only am I interviewing like experts, like I just spoke with Sergei Popovic, who's a Serbian activist, and he started the activist group that took down Slobodan Milosevic, the dictator in Slobodan Milosevic, in the 90s, which is huge. I mean, Milosevic was called the butcher of the Balkans mm-hmm. because, you know, the the type of totalitarian regime that he led, and so, Surge is on. going to be on this podcast that we're releasing. And when does a podcast start? Uh, it's, a ten, it's to, it's to okay. be determined right now. Probably okay. May. Probably this May. Okay. But we haven't put out an official, you know, date. So you know, I'm I'm interviewing these kinds of people because they are giving this information yeah. <laughs> to ordinary people. If ordinary people heard that this dude was in college, he was a bass player, didn't want to be an activist, thought activism was boring and all this kind of stuff, and he and his college friends got together and went from 11 students to 70,000 Serbs, mm. just doing the exact thing that those women did in Berlin, yeah. just saying we we won't live in this kind of society, right? if people knew that kind of power, then we'd have a different kind of world. So not only am I trying to deliver that kind of content to people so that people can understand, but there are also people that maybe they haven't heard of. You know, my friends that I mentioned before that are also doing great work that can really help people understand what the problem is and what we can do about it, so...
0: I love it, dude. I I love the work you're doing. Thanks for putting it out in the world. We have this phrase with brave maker that brave stories change the world Mm. and you are the story. Yeah. Like we're, we need to be the story that has an impact that makes a change that, that gets people talking, that gets people aware. And so I really think like your story is, is brave, dude. So thanks for, thanks for being a part of it. So brave makers, all his links will be in our, our notes Uh, we will be making some videos today as well so we'll be pushing some of that content out and if you went to the bias film screening on monday march 25th you got to meet andre in person but please share this podcast with other people and sign up for his stuff and I know we all have limited time and we're busy. I try to listen to like three podcasts a day because I'm in the car, you oh know, a gosh. lot. But if you just choose one, you know, do one a week, you're going to learn a lot in your life. Yeah. Your life's going to be changed. So thank you, Andre Henry. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. All right. Have a good lunch. <laughs> Holy Cannoli Podcast is is a proud production of Brave Maker Media. For more information or to donate, go to BraveMaker.com to make your tax-deductible donation today. Thanks for listening to Holy Cannoli. If you liked my dad's podcast, please subscribe, give it a review, and share it with someone you think would be encouraged by it.